This message was preached as pulpit supply by Jared File. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it is beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. We have here a letter that Peter wrote to churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, uh, in this letter, Peter is writing to tell these suffering Christians who are under persecution how they are to live in a hostile environment. Now, we can somewhat relate to that. We may may not uh, uh, be under the threat of physical persecution where we might be taken out and beaten because we are Christians, but we are, uh, we do live in a hostile world. Uh, It it, it costs something to say that you're a Christian. Uh, In years past, there may have been some kind of a, a, a cultural weight to being a Christian where, where uh, uh, if, if you wanted to be something in society, you had to be a member of a church. You know, if you wanted to run for public office, you had to have that capital of, of being a member of a church, whether you believed or not. But today, if anything, being a Christian might be a liability. You have uh, some people in Congress, in the Senate, who say that people who, uh, who hold to things that are just clearly Christian doctrine, that, that those people are, are disqualified for serving in politics simply because they hold things that the Bible teaches. We live in a hostile world. And that hostility uh, that we live in in the world has, is not something new. It's not something that happened in just our day, in the lives that we live. It is not something that, uh, that, that is, is new, but it's something that Jesus promised would happen. He said, if they hate me, they'll hate you as well. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> and, and, and this hostility towards God has been that way ever since Genesis 3 in the garden. When God said to, to the, the serpent that had tempted Eve, he'll put enmity between its seed, that serpent seed, and the seed of the woman, the descendants of Eve. Uh, there, there is hostility between Satan and, uh, and, the, and, and those who are believing. There is hostility between the world and, and the people of God. It goes all the way back to the garden and it lives with us today. And Peter is here writing a, a letter to believers who have been dispersed throughout uh, the land um, on how they are to live in this hostile world. We see first, Peter says, uh, he identifies himself, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the word apostle means someone who is sent, someone who sent maybe to send a message, and uh, with the fact that Jesus called these 12 members, these 12 disciples that were following him, apostles, that, that's, a, that's a, a, an official office that, uh, that uh, only the early church had. Uh, these apostles were able to speak with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, as as they, he sent them out, they were the ones, the apostles, they were the ones who wrote the scriptures down for us. They were the ones who wrote the, the, the New Testament so that we would have with us God's word. And they spoke with the authority of Jesus. So when we hear the words of this letter... From an apostle of Jesus Christ, we are hearing what Jesus wants us to know. We are hearing what what, uh, is 
It is written from the pen of Peter, but it is exactly what Jesus wants us to know as we live in a hostile world. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So he's talking to believers. When the Bible says uh, those who are elect, he's talking to believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today, uh, this letter is to you. Um, He's, and, and one of the ways that God talks of, that the Bible talks about um, believers is we are elect. We've been chosen. Now, I, I, the Bible never says that in order that we can speculate and, and, and have uh, philosophical conversations about, well, who's elect and who's not. That's not what the purpose is here. The purpose is to give us confidence. If we are living in a hostile world where everyone is against us, it is helpful and it is encouraging to us to know God shows us. God shows us. And, and uh, we are exiles. We live in a world where, we're, where we are aliens and strangers. We ought not to feel at home. And, and the way that the hostility has risen in our culture over, over the last generation ought to make us feel more and more like exiles and strangers. And maybe you feel it. Maybe you can resonate with it. Oh, that, that, that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. That's the kind of, of, of resonance that we should have when we see this. We are, we are elect aliens. We are, we are foreigners in this world. This world is not our true home. We are citizens of heaven. If we're believers in Jesus, we have a, a, a new citizenship. It's in heaven, not here on earth. And we live by the rules of our king who has inbroken into this world and, ha- and has another kingdom. As he lists all these different names of different cities, of different churches that uh, he's sending this out to, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all of these different cities, they're all uh, uh, kind of make a circle beginning with one and you can kind of see a route where, where whenever this letter was first sent by Peter, uh, it would have gone from one church to the next church to the next church to the next church. And in that, there's a special uh, a way that we can, we can feel it's so relevant to us. It wasn't just sent to one congregation to, to deal with the issues of that one congregation, but it was sent to a multiple amount of churches. And it still relates to us today because we still live in that hostile world. He says they were elect angels according or not elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the spirit and the obedience and for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This here shows us that all three persons in the Trinity were involved in our salvation. God the Father, it was His plan. It didn't happen by accident. It was His plan to save us from the beginning of of the world, from the foundation of the earth. He planned this grand plan of redemption that He would send the Son to die in our place, uh, to die uh, the death of, of a criminal in our place that we might be called children of God. 
And, and it, was, it was in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification, uh, there's two uh, meanings for, for, for sanctification, for, ho- for becoming holy. Uh, one, it's that moral quality, that, that moral holiness. Uh, when we're sanctified by the Spirit, it, it, it means he's, he's making us more and more like Jesus. He's making us more and more uh, um, holy. As we grow in Christ-likeness. And, and also, the, this sanctification has, a, has an idea of being set apart and different. So, as, as the, the Holy Spirit, its work in salvation is to, to bring us out, to, to, to open our eyes and to cause us to be different from the rest of the world. So, the Father planned it. The Spirit applies it to us as He, he sets us apart. He pulls us out of the rest of the world. And, and it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. We didn't get saved. We didn't become Christians so that we could just go on with our lives and just be happy the way we always wanted to and then just have Jesus added on. No. Here it tells us we were saved for a purpose and our, the purpose of our salvation was so that we would be obedient to Jesus Christ. Notice the, the order that's there. We are not saved by obedience to Jesus Christ. We're saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have been saved not because of our own works, not because we are, are just good enough or smart enough, not because we could understand things in the Bible and somebody else couldn't. No, we are saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. He, he reaches down to us who are dead in our trespasses and sins. He, he makes us come alive and He does all this so that we would be obedient to Him. And He does it all through the sprinkling of His blood. What, cause, what, what is the, the basis on which we could be saved and which we could be forgiven of our sins? It's the fact that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. That He, he died for us. He was the sacrifice like the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And Peter here says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is all just the introduction of the text. And when he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, he's, he's not just saying a casual hello. He's, he's saying something that is filled with theological meaning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He wants those things to be increasing within us. Now, grace. Grace, of course, is a gift. It's, it, the word for grace actually means a gift. It's something that we receive freely. We don't earn it. We don't, we don't buy it. It's a gift. And, and we received all the grace that we would ever need when Jesus died on the cross for us. But at the same time, we become, how does that grow? How does, how does that become multiplying to us? We become more and more and more aware of the grace that we received in Jesus. As we reflect on Him and what He did for us on the cross, as we reflect on Him and think about Him and obey Him, we become more and more aware and astounded by the rich majesty of Jesus. And, and we become so overblown, just so blown away by the, by the majesty and the glory of Jesus and His grace. And we have 
peace multiplied to us. We, we have, have a growing sense of that peace that passes all understanding. When we become aware and we think on and, and we meditate on what Jesus did for us, it, there's a lot of things we can have anxiety about. We can have anxiety about work. We can have anxiety about our finances. We can have anxiety about all kinds of things in this world. And I don't have to tell you, you probably feel it. One of the cures for anxiety is to meditate on what Jesus did for you on the cross. It just to think on those things and just become more and more aware, and it brings us such a great peace that passes all understanding into us. Now we'll get to verse three. That, that was all just the introduction to the letter. And a lot of times whenever Paul is writing, he'll, he'll start with a thanksgiving. Here we see a doxology. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and all of the things that come after that are all reasons why God is to be blessed. When, whenever it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's telling us we ought to praise God. That's, that's what it's meaning whenever it says to, to, to blessed be Him. We ought to join in with Peter in praising God. Praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's specific here. He doesn't just say the philosopher's God. He doesn't just say God in general. He doesn't, he's not talking about uh, Paul Tillich's the ground of all being. He's talking about the specific personal God who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was the God of, who, who promised David that he would have a son sitting on his throne forever. He is the God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who came down and lived among us and lived a perfect life and, and died in our place. That's the God we worship. Not all of the gods of the nations. Not, uh, not any, any kind of block of wood or stone or, or, or brick or any other kind of idol. No, we worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Peter tells us, we ought to praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is telling us the reasons why we ought to praise Him. First of all, he says, He's caused us to be born again. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have, have trusted in Him, you've been born again. He's changed you. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and He made you come alive. You've been born again. Now, we, we sometimes think about born-again Christians as some kind of a, a political category, but it's not. The Bible tells us, unless you be born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And for believers, if we're trusting in Jesus, if we're trusting in Him, then that's happened to us. We were once dead and He's made us come alive. We, we live a new life. Our old man is gone. And our new life is a life of following Jesus. A new life with new eyes, a new heart, new creations in Christ Jesus. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
We have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a block of wood like the idol worshippers of old. It's not something that is insecure. It is not something that might pass away. But no, our hope, the thing that we hold on to, is living. It's, it's living and active. It is secure. It can be trusted in. Our living hope is... It, we're born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we might ask, how can we know that Christianity is true? How can we know that what we believe, what the Bible says is really true? Well, I think it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. We had... We had uh, Many, many different... You know, the, the, in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us there were 500 different witnesses who, who saw Jesus alive at one time. You had all the apostles who, who, who are witnesses, eyewitnesses, that He really did raise from the dead. This is not just some kind of, of, of figment of their imagination. This is not just some kind of mythology created to advance a new religion. No, Jesus, who physically came to this earth, who physically died and was dead, <coughs> rose again, lived again. He had a sword stuck through His side. He had nails in His hands, in His feet. And He was alive again. Three days later on Easter. That's how we can believe that the Bible is true. This is, this is a historical account of something that really happened in history. <coughs> Eyewitnesses tell us that Jesus really rose from the dead. So why is it that Christianity is true and not Buddhism, Hinduism, all these other things? These other religious philosophies that might give us some ideas and some principles about living. But Christianity and the Bible is rooted in historical events where the Son of God actually came to earth, lived a human life, and He died in our place. And He didn't just stay dead, but He proved that what He said was true he proved that he really was God and he really that what he said was really true by raising from the dead. If you can believe eyewitness testimony, you can believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and that's how we can have confidence that our hope is living. That our our hope is not just in some kind of philosophy that might or might not be True, our, philosophy, our, our, our hope is in a person who rose from the dead. <coughs> Next. Our, he caused us to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. We have something to look forward to. We have an inheritance. You know, an inheritance, it's, it's when, when, when you have some relative or, or maybe your parents pass away and they leave you an inheritance. It's not really something to rejoice about in human terms. But we have an inheritance that we receive from God the Father. We have a home in heaven. We, we have uh, 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 the fact that our citizenship is there. It's secure. 
Not like here on earth. That is the inheritance that we have to look, look forward to. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, inheritance was so, so important. God promised Abraham that he would have land. He'd have the land of Canaan. He would have uh, descendants as many as the stars of the heavens and, the, and as, as the sand of the sea. He promised him that he would have a, son, uh, have, have a descendant who would be a blessing to all nations. And an inheritance was so important in the Jewish uh, mindset that uh, as they gave the law about the tribal distributions, uh, land could not go permanently from one tribe to another. If you made a, a, a real estate transaction, after seven years, the year of Jubilee, then that, that land would revert back to its original tribe because inheritance was so, so important. And we have an inheritance that's greater than a piece of real estate. We have an inheritance that is salvation itself. We have an inheritance that is life with God forever. We have an inheritance that is joy inexpressible. And this inheritance, it tells us, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. We'll look at each one of those. It is imperishable. When we think about things that are perishable, oftentimes I think of a piece of fruit, maybe a peach. Oh man, I've been eating some peaches lately. Oh, they smell so good and they taste so good when you, when you eat that nice juicy peach. But they're perishable, right? If you let them sit on the counter too long and the fruit flies get to them, you cut one open, you're liable to find a little worm crawling inside, right? Amanda's sitting here with me. She's my second child. And she cut one open that we got the other day at the store and she found just that, a worm crawling inside. It's perishable. And if you let them sit on the counter for a little while, a, a little too long, and those fruit flies keep coming, eventually they're not going to smell so sweet, are they? They're going to start to smell kind of rotten. That's perishable. But our inheritance that we have in heaven for us is imperishable. It will never rot. It will never be destroyed. It will never uh, wear out. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. Everything we know in this world is defiled. It has been affected by sin. You know, with, with, with the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, we, we have experienced this, this brokenness in our world. And people get sick and we have pain and we have distorted relationships between people where, where there's um, uh, people don't get along and people get angry at each other. And all these, these kinds of things that are tainted by sin. And our lives have been defiled. But we have an inheritance that is free from all of that where we look forward to a future where there will be perfect harmony between people, between the people and animals, between um, uh, uh, there will no longer be any sickness, no longer be any pain, no longer be any depression, no longer be any of the things that get us down today. We look forward to a future that is undefiled. None of the things that drag us down because of sin into the world will be there any longer. It will be undefiled. And it is unfading. Unfading. A couple of things here. Uh, I always like to get a brand new book. 
and, and, and uh, if I get a, get a new book, I might, I might admire its nice, shiny, glossy cover and, 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 and just open it up and smell those pages. And if I sit that out at my home and, and, and let it sit in the sun, the, 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 the pages and the, and the nice, glossy cover will begin to fade. And that, that maybe I'll, I'll read it several times and the, 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 uh, the, the cover will begin to, to wear. Maybe the binding won't even hold together. And it's just fading. Or maybe a new car. You get a brand new car and, and you get so excited about it, right? You, you bring it home and you want to show everybody. And, and, and uh, you have, have your friend come over and, and sit in the car just to feel that, that smell that new car smell. And you turn on the radio and you say, listen to that sound system go. A few miles get on the car. Start hearing some of that engine knocking. The paint begins to fade and maybe peel a little bit of rust around the fenders. You're not quite as excited as you were about that car the first time you brought it home, are you? But our inheritance that is in heaven will never fade. We will be just as excited about it when we have been there 10,000 years as when we first begun. We will be there. We will, we will be just as excited about the inheritance that we will receive because of what Jesus did for us in a million years than when we first see Him face to face. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. And it is unfading. The hope that He has for us. That hope that we have of a world that's untainted by sin and all of its effects. And it is kept in heaven for you. A couple of things here. It is kept in heaven. You know, uh, Jesus tells us, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But He says, lay up your treasure in heaven where they can't do that. The, 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 the moth and rust don't destroy and the thieves don't break in and steal. <coughs> the fact that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us means that nobody can touch it. Nobody can break in and steal. Nothing can get to it. It is kept safe and secure. God protects it by His power. And, and notice the very last word here of this sentence. It is kept in heaven for you. It's got your name on it. Amen? It's got your, it, he keeps it for you. It's not just some general inheritance that, 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 that might be just shared among each believer. But no, it's, it's you. It's you. He's, like he said in the first verse, we've been chosen by God. We've been, and, and because of God has chosen us, He keeps our inheritance specifically for you. All of these things ought to cause us to praise Him. Right? It ought to cause us to praise Him. To know we have been born again. We once were dead and now we're alive. We have been born again. We've got a new life in Jesus Christ. It ought to cause us to praise Him. To know that we have an inheritance that waits for us. That won't disappoint us. 
but will always be completely and totally satisfying. And then finally, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Now it begins there with that relative pronoun, who. Who. And who is it talking about? You. He's, he says, it's kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. God's very power. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Him, if you've been born again, God's power guards you. And that word guard has the idea of of setting a garrison of soldiers around you. He, He protects you by His power. And you might wonder, okay, I know God holds my inheritance in the future, protected, it's perfect by His power, but how do I know that I will endure? How do I know in this world there's so many temptations and trials, there's so much hostility from the world, how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know I won't give up? Because you're kept by God's power. You're kept not because of your strength, not because you're so strong or you're so smart. No, you're kept by God's power. And in that moment, whenever you feel like, I just don't have the faith to keep on going. I just don't. I feel like my, my faith is even smaller than a mustard seed. It doesn't depend on you. But it's God's power that will hold you securely and will never let you go. That ought to cause you to praise God, huh? That ought to cause us to praise Him. Hallelujah! We're kept by His power through faith. We might feel, like I said, like our faith is so small. Like we don't have enough. But He guards us by His power through faith. He gives. If we don't feel like we have enough faith to keep going, He gives it. He gives it. He, he continues to pour that into us. We just, we just keep believing and trusting in Him. And if, when we feel like we're ready to give up, He gives us faith. He helps us to hold on to Him. For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And this talks about salvation in a future sense. Now, We often talk about salvation in the past tense like, I got saved when I knelt at the altar and trusted Jesus as my Savior, right? We we might say, I got saved or, or, or Jesus saved me. But the Bible talks about salvation in three senses, in the past, present, and future. Yes, it's true. He saved us. He saved us on the cross. He saved us when we knelt down and and, and gave Jesus our lives. And He is saving us. It's a continual process. He is saving us. And one day, that salvation will be revealed. And that word reveal, it's it's an unveiling. Just like the book of Revelation. It's that same word. Uh, It means to reveal something. to, to, To tear away the veil. And... And on that last day, we might have our doubts and our struggles all the way through where, where we just don't know, have I, really, have I really trusted in Jesus? And on that last day, 
Our salvation, which is here now, and it's ready to be revealed. It's, it's, it's here, and it's now, and it's ready, and it's secure. On that last day when Jesus returns again, the veil will be ripped away, and we'll be able to see, I'm real. I'm real. When I had my doubts, and when I had my insecurities, it was nothing. Because when that veil is ripped away, I'll know, my faith was real. It's ready now to be revealed. And one day when He comes again, it'll be revealed. And we'll see what Jesus has done. That ought to cause us to praise God, huh? That ought to cause us to praise Him. To bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. New life in Jesus. He's got an inheritance for us, just waiting for us that will never, ever fade. And He holds us securely in His hand and He will never let us go. Praise be to Him. Hallelujah. Praise be to Him.